Last week, we began looking at the unlikely faith of a lowly woman in Jericho. And from this narrative, from this story, as we began to look at last week, we see that no one is beyond God's reach. And we started last week looking at characteristics of an unlikely faith. Characteristic number one we saw last week was that an unlikely faith is always sourced in God. We don't once see God's name in verses 1 to 7, but we see God's fingerprints all over the beginning of this story. As the spies are sent out, they view the land, they focus in on Jericho, and they are led to this woman, Rahab. And we already see that God has prepared the way in Rahab's heart for this encounter. We see that, that the king comes and, 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 and his messengers say, where are the two men? And, and, and she hides the men and says, and says that they, they left, so go pursue them. God's doing a work. And we began to look last week at characteristic number two of an unlikely faith, that an unlikely faith turns to God. Verses 8 to 14. And this morning we're going to continue looking at the story of Rahab, the story of these two spies, and we're going to continue to look at these foundational elements of an unlikely faith. Because a faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. And for us to be able to have our eyes open, to be able to look to Jesus Christ as Savior and King and Lord, it is an act of God. It's not something that we can somehow muster up within ourselves. So as we seek to have this conquering faith, both in this life and the one to come, we are going to continue to look at what this unlikely faith looks like. So let's pray as as we begin. Lord, I just pray that you would be at work this morning as we continue to look at this unlikely event in the life of an unlikely person. And Father, may we gain a greater confidence in You. That Lord, it is You who works in our hearts. It is You who opens our eyes. And Lord, I pray that we would respond in faith, that we would respond in obedience to what You are doing. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. An unlikely faith turns to God. We see this unlikely faith in the life of Rahab in a couple different ways. We've already seen indicators of her change of heart in the first seven verses when she protects the men, but we're going to continue to see this unlikely faith in that she is actually turning to the one and only true God. And like I said last week, everyone has faith. It's not a matter of, do you have faith? It's a matter of, what is your faith sourced in? The atheist has faith that there is no God. So an unlikely faith, a faith that only God can give, is a faith that turns to God. And we see this in verses 8 to 11 through Rahab's realization. She comes to this point that this is what she believes. This is how she responds. In verse 8, the spies are gone, or excuse me, the, the soldiers are gone. You remember we said last week they got into their fords and they started to look for the, for the uh, two spies. Uh, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, let's let's read what she said. I know that the Lord has given you the land. 
and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. I mentioned last week that the I don't know of verse 5 has now turned to the I do know of verse 9. The first thing that Rahab realizes is God has given Israel the land. That there is no question about it in in Rahab's heart. Your God is going to do this. And here's here's how my people have responded to, to your God's working. The fear of you has fallen upon us. This fear is the very opposite fear that God told Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9, Have I commanded you, be strong and be uh, courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, there is a characteristic faith that we as God's people have that those who are, who are without God do not have. That even in fearful circumstances, there is a fear that is characteristic of this world that we should not have. It is not that we don't struggle with fear, because if that was true, then, then God would not have three times in, in nine verses in chapter 1 said, do not be afraid. That the number one command in Scripture would not be, do not fear. It's not that we don't struggle with fear, it is that we do not have to have a fear like the world has. And the city of Jericho, the inhabitants of Jericho, are filled with fear right now. In fact, she goes even further to describe this fear that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. I mean, isn't that a perfect description of fear melting? How many of you have seen Indiana Jones and, and um, um, The Lost Ark? That's a good, ana- when, I, when I read this, that's what I think of melting. Remember at the end, um, that, that guy's face melts like wax? That, that, that's, that, that's how I picture the inhabitants of Jericho in their hearts. It's like they're nothing, they just melt. In fact, this is exactly what the Israelites sang about and prophesied in Exodus 15. After they crossed the Red Sea, they said in their song of celebration to, to Yahweh, to God, for, the, for deliverance, they said, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. As we were giving different opportunities to, uh, to individuals in our church this past summer to be a part of our psalm series, uh, Roger preached on Psalm 46. You know what verse 6 says? The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, speaking of God, the earth melts. No one or no thing can stand before God. That is who our God is. And Rahab understands the Lord has given you the land. The rest of the inhabitants, they were responding to what they saw God doing in melting in fear, but as we will see, this response to God is not one of running to God, it is running away from God We are melting in fear. What can we do to self-preserve ourselves? She realizes that God has given Israel the land, but she also realizes something else. That God is at work for His people. Here's why the inhabitants are melting in fear. Reputation has preceded these two spies. They didn't have Facebook or Twitter or the internet to read their news from to get news right away. But the news has spread to the other side of the Jordan River of what has happened. 
Verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Wow, imagine that. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. The parting of the Red Sea is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 14. If you're curious, the, what, what Israel did to the two kings of the Amorites and their cities, that's recorded for us in Numbers 21, verses 23 to 35. In fact, the land of, of uh, Sihon and Og on the, the opposite side of Jordan where the Israelites, that we're going to see it in chapter 3, crossed the Jordan. The tribe of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are going to occupy that land. But God has already been at work with His people and the inhabitants of Jericho have heard about this. And they are fearful. That term, devoted to destruction, that is, that is one word in the Hebrew language. And that means that everything is, is destroyed and devoted to God. It's used several times, we'll see, in the book of Joshua. And I want to just take a minute of our time to kind of put a parenthesis in, in this sermon to answer this question that maybe you have heard um, from maybe unbelieving friends or maybe skeptics of the Bible, why would a loving God uh, uh, annihilate the inhabitants of Canaan? Um, is this not um, an evil, wicked example of genocide? How many of you ever have, have heard that question? Yeah. And I think there's, there, when we come up to this word devoted to destruction, that this is a, a proper time to address that issue. If you do have something in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, now's the time that we're going to go there. We're going to see that this is not the results of the whim of an angry God. Back in Deuteronomy 7, this is what, God, uh, what Moses tells the people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must, and here's that one word term we see again, you must devote them to complete destruction. It's like, wow, that seems kind of, kind of overkill, right? No pun intended. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. You see, our view of God must precede the conclusions that we make of what we read in Scripture. And what we see according to Scripture is that God is Creator and everything and everyone stand accountable to Him. And as, as, as Abraham said to God, uh, when, 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 Abraham, when God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Abraham says, shall not the God of all the earth do justly? And yes, God does do all things justly. But it is not we, it is not God that somehow gives accountability to us. It is we that are accountable to God as our creator. And we see here that we are dealing with a people that have turned their backs on God. God is creator and all stand accountable to Him, but also we have to realize that as sovereign creator and judge, that God used Israel to judge these wicked nations. If you look just a page or so over in your Bible, you look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. In verses 4 to 6, it says this, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, talking about the the inhabitants of Canaan, do not say it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you that He may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So here we see that God is simply using Israel as His instruments of judgment. It is because of this gross wickedness of these nations. I mean, we see how merciful and just that God is before we even get to the book of Joshua, which is questioned by skeptics about God's motives and who is this God of the Bible. Uh, When God approaches Abraham and says, I'm going to have to go down to Sodom and destroy Sodom, I mean, Abraham is like, God, don't get angry with me. For 50 righteous, will you spare the city? For 40, for 30, for 20? Gets all the way down. For, for, for 10 righteous, I think it was 10 or, or 5, I forget off the, off the top of my head. But will you even spare for that many? And God says, yes, I will. That tells us about the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. That as creator and righteous judge, God was acting according to His character and was now bringing judgment on the inhabitants of Canaan. But not only this, but we also have to realize that God does not show partiality. You don't have to turn there to be on the screen, but in the book of Leviticus in, in, in chapter 18, God warns Israel this. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. That's a descriptive term. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So we see that God is not a God of partiality. He tells His own people, don't you follow in the footsteps of the Canaanites or the same thing will happen to you. And we read later in the Old Testament that they were vomited out of the land. Now someone may say, well, doesn't that provide justification for all, for all of the... Uh, the holy wars that, 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 have, that have come since, and you think of the crusaders, and you think of, uh, of, of different individuals that have come in religious words and have wreaked havoc on humanity. And the answer is no, that does not 
provide justification for those individuals. Because once again, we see in Scripture that while God, at a particular period of time in the Old Testament, He used Israel as His instruments of judgment, just like He used Babylon and Assyria as His instruments of judgment against His own people, the Bible says that now that God has appointed one individual as judge. And that individual, all humanity, will one day give an account on that last day. You see, Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh and now stands as judge on that last day. Peter says in Acts 10.42 that God has appointed His own Son for all to give an account. Acts 10.42 So no one has the, the authority to act on God's behalf because God has given that authority to His one and only Son. So as we read the book of Joshua, we see that God is 100% in the right to do with His creation and with rebellious humanity as He pleases. And Rahab has come to this understanding. And in verse 11, we see the third conclusion that Rahab comes to, that God is indeed the one true God. Verse 11 says, as soon as we heard it, notice she puts herself in this, we heard it, our hearts melted. And isn't this a good description of fear as well? And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. So this is the response of seeing God at work that the people had and that even Rahab had, that our hearts melted. But for Rahab, it didn't just stop there. Look at her next statement. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. We see faith in Rahab's response. You see, when, when the message of the Gospel goes out, and when we see what condition we are in without Christ, and the condemnation and judgment that we are under, rather than that drawing us away from God, a biblical response is that makes us turn to God to seek refuge in Him. And that is what we see with Rahab. In fact, as one individual says concerning Rahab's statements about the Red Sea crossing and what happened to these other two kings and their nations, this individual says, Rahab has learned her history well and responds with a reaffirmation of the fear of those who oppose Israel and with the confession that only Israel's God controls the destiny of the world. That's what the Bible teaches. Rahab sees that God is the one true God. So an unlikely faith is a faith that turns to God, and we see this in Rahab's realization in verses 8 to 11. But we also see that an unlikely faith, a God that only uh, a faith that only God can give, not only turns to God, as seen through Rahab's realization that she was different than how everyone else responded. We see her faith in Rahab's request. Look at verses twelve and thirteen. Now then, so in light of the reality that your God is the one true God, now then, please swear to me by the Lord, Yahweh, His covenant name, all caps, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my Father's house and give me a sure sign. 
that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. There's two requests here. Number one, please would you now deal kindly with me and my family. That word kindly is the interesting word. It's the word uh, hesed. You kind of got to make a guttural sound. Hesed. And it is talking about a covenant, loyal love. It's the word that describes God's covenant loyalty to us. It's the word that is so often described as the steadfast love of the Lord. And we already see indicators through this word even being used that Rahab is becoming a covenant member of God's people. And she says, I have dealt kindly. I have dealt with unconditional loyalty to you spies by hiding you. Now, would you please deal kindly with me? And, and not only with me, but with my family. Remember last week we talked about how this story so closely seems to, to point us in parallel the unlikely faith of the woman at the well. And what does she do? Is she simply concerned with herself? No, she runs back to the city and she tells as many people as she can, come and see the man, this prophet, who has told me all that I am. And she invites others. Rahab's request here is not only for herself, but for her family and the second aspect of her request is, would you give me a sure sign? Literally, would you give me a sign of truth or a sign of trust? That you will indeed deal kindly with me and my family. Again, as, as, as one person has mentioned, here is the evidence of faith. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but presses on to take refuge in God. Rahab not only must know the clear truth about God, but also must escape the coming wrath of God. It isn't just a matter of correct belief, but of desperate need. Saving faith is always like this. Remember that. It never stops with brooding over the nature or activity of God, but always runs to take refuge under His wings. Amazingly, Rahab not only trembles before the terror of the Lord, but also senses that there might be mercy in this fearful God. What but the touch of Yahweh's hand could have created such faith in the heart of this pagan harlot. This is saving faith, folks. That the type of faith that other inhabitants of, of, of Jericho could have had, that, wow, there's something different about this God. There's something stronger about this God. So my response is simply going to be terror... And my response is simply going to be an acknowledgement of what this God is doing. No, Rahab says, I am going to run to this God to see if there just might be mercy. Folks, my greatest fear is that there could be individuals in this church there could be individuals in my family or your family. There could be individuals that you are know at work that they very easily claim to be Christian. But it is simply the acknowledgement of facts and not the running under the refuge of God's wings. 
How many individuals, Jesus said, shall say, Lord, Lord, have we not done these things in your name? And what does Jesus say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Folks, the book of James in James chapter 2, when it talks about works evidencing faith, it doesn't say that works is the cause of faith, but that works is the result of faith. And guess whose example James brings up? Rahab. That her faith was evidenced by her actions. And folks, we cannot assume whether that's with our children, whether that's with our parents, whether that's with individuals in the church, whether that is with friends and neighbors and co-workers, that because they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, that that makes it true. There is a turning to God in response to who He is and what He has done and the the righteousness that they are under that judgment of God and there is a seeking refuge. There is a casting everything to this God because nothing else matters in light of Him. That's saving faith. We see Rahab's realization and Rahab's request But in verse 14, we also see Rahab's relief. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly, there's that word hesed, and faithfully with you. We see here the spy's oath May we die if we are not faithful to the promise we will make. And notice not only this, this oath of the spies, but their faith. When the Lord gives us the land, I mean, their faith is, this is as good as done. Contrast that with, in Numbers, the report of the ten spies. No, it's a totally different response here. And then we see They commit their nation to action. When the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. We will deal with covenant kindness and faithfulness to you. This is simply descriptive of the Lord God Himself. Exodus 34, God says of Himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, and here's those two terms, in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loyal love, that's hesed, and faithfulness come before your face. Simply, uh, folks, the, the Israelites were simply mirroring who their God was. And that's what we're called to do. To mirror who our God is. And that leads us to the third characteristic of an unlikely faith. An unlikely faith that's sourced in God, an unlikely faith will turn to God. And thirdly, an unlikely faith does not look back. Rahab had an opportunity to look back. I mean, there were several days here between her meeting the spies and the, and the nation ever coming and crossing the Jordan, as we'll see in chapters 3 and 4, that she could have turned back. But as opposed to turning back, verses 15 to 16 show us that Rahab acts upon her faith. Verse 15 Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. You see, Rahab's defense was no longer in this city. Though she lived in the walls of this city, her heart was no longer bound to this city. No, verse 16 shows us she aligned herself with God's people 
It says, she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go on your way. You see, her heart is now aligned with the people of Israel. She is not just giving lip service to the God of Israel. Her actions are indicators of her faith. And so it is with us. Note also that the inhabitants of Jericho's actions are in line with their faith. What are the the men that are listed in verse 16 doing? They are pursuing the spies to capture them. So just like as believers we are called to live out our faith, The world around us is also living out their faith in a much different way than the faith that we possess as God's people. Is there a difference in the way you're living your life? Is there a difference in the trust that you're exercising every day? Or are you marching to the same beat of this culture. You see, Rahab, her faith doesn't look back. She acts upon her faith. Then verses 17 to 21, we see that Rahab does indeed find her refuge in God. In verse 17, it says, The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. That's going back to verse 14. Um, And at verse 18, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be in our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. So here the spies say, we will be faithful to this this oath, this covenant that we are making with you, but you have to have all of the individuals in your house, you have to have this scarlet, rope or cord coming out your window and you can't betray us and tell what where we are going and what we are doing so we see in these verses that Rahab was to follow the spies instructions and uh, we, we we're all familiar with this scarlet cord And many individuals uh, will will raise the question, like we talked about last week, um, was Rahab right to lie or not? Um, We'll raise the question, is the scarlet cord, is it pointing to Christ or is it just a detail of the story? And and you'll hear uh, good Christian pastors and teachers that, that that will land on both sides. I say yes, absolutely, this scarlet cord points to the redemption and refuge that we have in Christ, but not because it's a scarlet cord. Not because it's red. I want to give you three reasons why, and the first is we see the necessity of the scarlet cord in verse 18. It was significant in that it marked Rahab's house for protection. The parallel idea of this is not to simply jump right from the scarlet cord to the cross of Christ because, you know, scarlet, blood, um, that parallel. No, the connection that we see in Scripture actually goes backwards. Do you know where it goes backwards to? It goes backwards to the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, what were the children of Israel to do 
when the wrath of God, the judgment of God, moved through Egypt. They were to sacrifice, Exodus 12, verses 21 to 23, they were to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And what were they to put on the door frame, the doorposts? Blood. They were to all be gathered into the house, not a single individual outside. And when the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over you. You see, what we are having is we are having a 2.0 version of this in, in Jericho where now there is one single woman who has come to faith in Yahweh God. And as there is again judgment that is coming upon Jericho like Egypt, this woman, rather than putting the blood on the door frames, is putting this sign of God's protection outside her window. And she and all who are in her house will be spared. You see, folks, as we see the pattern in Scripture, the Passover, this scarlet cord, we then are pointed forward to Jesus. That because of the blood of Christ that has been applied to our hearts, we are no longer under the judgment of God. And that is the only way to not be under God's judgment. We see the necessity of the scarlet cord. We see the necessity of the family uh, of Rahab to gather her family in the house just like Israel, the Israelites in Egypt. And then we see the necessity of Rahab's allegiance to follow through on this. And what does Rahab do? She commits herself to the God of Israel. Verse 21. She said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Rahab could have said, that seems too easy. That seems like there's too many holes in that plan. Don't go without giving me more of a verification. But what does she do? She simply acts in obedience. Rahab is in a place where she is finding her full refuge in the God of Israel. And that leads us to the fourth and final aspect of an unlikely faith. An unlikely faith spurs on the faith of others. Did you know that we as God's people, as a part of this church, can encourage each other because of our faith? Faith in the midst of adversity, faith in the midst of problems, faith in the midst of trial, of joy. We can spur on the faith of our spouse. We can uh, spur on the faith of our children, of our family members, of our friends, of our co-workers, of our neighbors. You see, faith spurs on the faith of others. Faith inspires faith. In verse 22, we see that God does indeed preserve the spies. Talking about the spies, it says, they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. You see, just as God would give Israel the city of Jericho, the land of Canaan, so God would protect each individual person. And God preserves the spies. And then we particularly see this, this joyous faith that has been spurred on through this encounter with Rahab in the spies' report as we end this chapter. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that happened to them. Everything. 
Now, do you think that this was like a boring report, like a, what's your monthly briefing? Tell us what happened. Well, this and this and this. No, I can imagine the excitement, the fervor, the fire in these two guys' eyes as they report the close call they had with the king and his messengers. They encounter this prostitute individual that they were that they were going to to kind of have as a, as a uh, her 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 in her house as a covert place of operations and to maybe get a no in the city because Rahab knew lots of different people and all the gossip as she told as he as they told Joshua and the people about this scarlet cord and the oath that they made to Rahab as they talked about their pursuit back to the camp, having to watch out for these messengers driving around their Ford trucks. If you weren't here last week, um, listen to the sermon on the website, you'll get the joke. As they secretly make it back and wait for those three days, all of that, I'm sure, has to be in the report. And what I also find interesting is that as we look at both sides of this story, I wonder if the report of these two spies and all that happened is occurring at the same time as Rahab is giving a report to her family. Mom, dad, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles. I ran into these two spies. Look at this rope. I'm to put this out the window. We all have to be gathered in here. No matter if we're shoulder to shoulder or how tight it is, God, the God of Israel, will save us. He will have mercy on us. They promised me. Imagine these two reports. Imagine if they're happening at the same time. You see, faith upon faith. That is, that is what it's to be like as a part of the people of God. That it's not just about you as an individual. It's not just about your family. It's about living the Christian life in community and knowing that as we are going through life, no matter how difficult it gets or complex, that we are living lives of faith and we're sharing that with others and we know that, that, that the others here in this church and in this community and in, in wider Christendom are going through trials and if we are reporting our, the goodness of God in the midst of this, Our faith is strengthened. The faith of others is strengthened. Verse 24, we don't know all that the spies reported. Although to be a good spy, you have to be detailed. Verse 24, it does tell us this. They said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. It's like, Joshua, I mean, we're, we're, we're ecstatic right now. We're, we kind of, this feels really surreal, but by sending us on this covert mission, we have just saw firsthand that everything that you've told us, that everything that God has said, it's true. I mean, God has truly given us the land. It's, it's in our hands. And then it says, and also, we've seen this firsthand too, Joshua, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. You see, the spies describe, they express a faith in God here. And they describe the people of the land. This is totally different. You don't have to turn there, but in the book of Numbers, 
Numbers chapter 13. Listen as I just read these few verses starting in verse 27. This is dealing with the 12 spies that went out and then the 10 that gave a bad report. This is their report. They told him, Moses, they told Moses, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Good report so far, right? However, verse 28, it's like, oh boy. It's kind of like that when someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, this has been really good and this and this, but, and you're like, oh boy. (laughs) However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the Jordan. Guys, it's not good. And then later it says, we were but grasshoppers before these guys. And what happens? The whole congregation melts in fear, grumbles, and disobeys. Folks, we see a totally different response when the response is one of faith. Would we be people of faith? Would we see that that in our lives, that as a church, that we go forward in faith, not looking to fight the battle to win it, but we go forward in faith because the battle has already been won in Jesus. Amen? And that is why we can have a faith that conquers because now our faith is to be rooted in Christ. And we, like these spies, give testimony and evidence to the realities of Christ on our behalf. That is our calling. That is how we are to live our lives. In a faith that is rooted in Christ.